Okay, you ready? You can hear me okay? Great, we're on? Perfect. Awesome. Let's go. I'm Peter Little, lead pastor at Christ Pacific Church in Huntington Beach, California. We're cultivating a community of faith, hope, and love that follows Jesus into the world. And you're listening to our Sunday Sermons podcast. To learn more about us or to subscribe to this podcast, visit us at cpchb.org. Thanks for listening. Morning. How's it going? Wow, that's super loud. Hi. You're awake now? If you weren't before. Hey, a couple comments about those announcements. I love this. I love this strategy that um, Jericho and Robin have. Hey, bring candy donations. They're for the Easter blessing bags. Right. I don't believe that for a second. Look, you guys, I'm also going to be doing Memorial Day blessing bags. So please donate your candy. I promise I won't eat it all myself. So good. Uh, By the way, really excited about the Wonder Woman um, retreat, although I'm a little bummed I can't go. Uh, So I can't wait for the Superman retreat. When is that happening? Should work on that. Uh, That's going to be an amazing uh, event. The speaker is one of my friends, and she uh, is, well, she's wonderful. And so uh, if you're a woman, uh, I hope you'll make a priority to come, uh, come to that. I'm Peter. Did I say that? My name's Peter. I'm the lead pastor here. Um, hi. Nice to meet you. There we go. Um, <clears throat> have you ever uh, met a bear in Yosemite National Park? Uh, I don't know if they're, if they're really friendly or, or just really smart. The bears in Yosemite um, actually have graduate degrees in how to get into your car. Um, uh, They're so smart, in fact, that uh, uh, not only are you not supposed to leave, you know, scented items in your car, because they will, of course, smell that, and then they break into your car, uh, but they're so smart, they actually know now what ice chests usually have in them. So if you, even if you leave a brand new, never-before-used ice chest that's empty, has no food in it, if you leave that in the back of your car, Almost guaranteed a bear is going to peel your door off and try to get into that ice chest and, of course, be very disappointed uh, because there's nothing in there. But the bears are so intelligent in Yosemite. Most of this happens in uh, the Yosemite Valley where most of the visitors are. And uh, I used to think that bears would be different in Tuolumne Meadows. Have you ever been to Tuolumne Meadows? It's like the whole part of Yosemite that's not in the valley. It's um, up high. So a number of years ago, I went on a solo backpacking trip, first mistake, a solo backpacking trip in Tuolumne Meadows, and I took off into the wilderness, and the first night I was camping in this lovely meadow and next to this giant boulder. It was like huge, and, and um, it was a lovely night, so I didn't even set up a tent. I'm just lying on the ground. Uh, the stars are out. It's gorgeous. I wake up in the middle of the night. Oh, oh, sorry, backstory. Um, you, uh, you have to put all your food and scented items in a bare canister, um, and then you put that canister, you know, somewhere over there, so that, because uh, the bears are going to smell it, but um, there's no way they can get into this bear canister, and it's over there. Uh, so I did that. Uh, bear canister's over there. I wake up in the middle of the night, and um, do you know this, uh, this really famous poem called Footsteps in the Sand, or Footprints in the Sand? Well, I woke up 
to footsteps in the sand. But it was not a lovely poem. I woke up in the middle of the night, and I heard, it was kind of a sandy area where I was sleeping, footsteps in the sand. And my heart rate went from whatever it was when I was sleeping, 55, to 155 in two seconds. I woke up, I hear footsteps, and my brain does this like, those are really close, I'm laying on the ground, right behind me, what is going on? So I sit up as fast as I can. I've got my headlamp laying next to me. And I sit up and I hear just like the scurry of footsteps, like a peeling out of a large creature as it pushes away and runs off. I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. So I wake up, put my headlamp on. Sure enough, there's like, you know, footprints in the sand that are giant, like six feet from where my head was. Six feet from where my head was. And uh, sure enough, it was um, one of these lovely bears in Yosemite. And uh, he or she just happened to be curious, I guess, about uh, me. And I felt as though I was six feet away from dying. But thankfully, uh, thankfully I was not. So then, okay, what am I going to do? So uh, I'm out for several nights. So then the next night, I'm like, I'm like, I just feel like I need to be out in the open so that I can see so I can see a long ways away, so I can see these bears coming in the middle of the night while I'm sleeping, right? I'm, you know, whatever. Like, I'm just trying to talk myself into feeling comfortable and safe. So I'm camping out in the middle of this meadow, <clears throat> finally end up falling asleep. This is night number two. And, and I wake up to this, like, thud, thud, thud. I'm like, wake up, you know, I'm all discombobulated. What is going on? And I wake up, and uh, sure enough, my bear canister, which I have put... Um, like between these two large boulders about 200 feet over there in the meadow, uh, I wake up and sure enough, there's a bear just pouncing with its front paws on my bear canister. I guess this was its strategy to try to get it open. Like, you have got to be kidding me. Actually, that was my second thought. My first thought was, I'm going to die. My second thought was, you've got to be kidding me. And uh, so I started making a bunch of noise and it ran off and I threw rocks at it just to keep, like try to get it to go farther away. Okay, so now what am I going to do for night number three? This is, I basically haven't slept at this point, right? So what am I going to do for night number three? Well, I did what any intelligent person would do. I, um, <clears throat> I basically picked up my camp, and I climbed up this mountain kind of as far as I could, and I slept basically on a cliff. And I thought, you know, no bear has any business coming up here. And thankfully, on night number three, I actually got uh, some rest. But... <clears throat> If you ever spend any time in the wilderness, what, what every person who spends time in the wilderness sort of dreads is that bear encounter. And uh, these are black bears, um, and so they're technically not all that dangerous. But uh, what every backpacker dreads is a bear encounter, a grizzly encounter, an encounter with a grizzly bear. And today... As we consider what it's like to be formed in the wilderness, what it's like for God to shape our hearts and our characters and our wills in the midst of the wilderness, we're going to hear about how the Lord does that even through and maybe especially in those grisly encounters that we experience, those really scary moments, those acute battles that we face and that we experience in the wilderness and not too unlike that dreaded grizzly encounter for a backpacker. How do we survive these kinds of encounters? 
when our foe is far bigger, far faster, far stronger, and a lot hungrier than we are? So that's the question today. How does God form us in those grisly encounters when we're afraid, when we feel like our life is on the line? So let's pray and we'll dive in. Gracious God, thanks so much for your presence here. We have just uh, sung these amazing songs and uh, entered into this time of worship, affirming your presence here. And we sing, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. And of course you are welcome here. And, and, and we acknowledge that actually you were here first and you welcomed us here. So thank you for your presence. In your presence with us, would you guide us? Would you form our hearts? Would you teach us? Would you make us more like Jesus? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the Israelites in this story in Exodus chapter 17, the Israelites are besieged by these people called the Amalekites. They're related to the mosquito bites. (laughs) Ever like when you read those, right? It's like one of, yeah. Mosquito bites. Uh, the Amalekites, I'm sorry, in the southern mountains of the Sinai Peninsula, right? So I think the question is, well, how did we get here? How did the Israelites get here? I'm so glad that you asked. Thank you for asking. I'm going to explain this. So the Lord has delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. Right? They've been uh, journeying southward. This is kind of their journey. It starts up here in the top left in Egypt, and they're headed south towards Uh, the tip of the Sinai Peninsula. They've been journeying southward. They're following the Lord, who's their expedition guide. And near the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula, they approach this location uh, called uh, Rephidim. It's most likely a place that we know um, called uh, the Wadi Rephid. It's a small, fertile oasis in the uh, mountains right here on the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula. Now, the Amalekites, they're descendants of the Edomites. They're they're like ancient Bedouin. They're nomads. Their persistence depended upon finding grazing land for their animals. And we know from some other references in the Bible that the Amalekites uh, were nomads in the southern, uh, in the south of Israel, in what's called the Negev Desert. And it would have been common practice for people like the Amalekites, nomads or or Bedouin like this, it would have been common practice for them, especially during the hottest months of the summer, to make their way up into the more mountainous region, which is in the south of the Sinai Peninsula. So it's not really surprising that when the Israelites make their way into this mountainous region on the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula, that they would encounter the Amalekites there at this place called Rephidim. Now, the immediate problem when these two people meet in the wilderness, the immediate problem with this reality is that the grazing land in this region can't support the Amalekites and the Israelites. There's too many goats and not enough grass. And so this is like the presenting motivation for the Amalekites to attack uh, the Israelites. But There's a deeper, more significant theological issue at hand. The Amalekites are presented over and over in the Bible as um, kind of the prototypical um, 
of pagans, if you will. Uh, they are anti-Lord. They are against God. Uh, the Bible calls them the first among the nations, and that is not a compliment. Because the nations in the Old Testament especially uh, is a reference to those who are without God and even those who are against God. So the Amalekites, they're like the prototypical, the, the leaders of the people who are without God and even against God. So what's at stake here in this encounter is not so much the rights to this pasture land. What's at stake here is who is the Lord? Who is the rightful Lord and God? Is it Yahweh, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God who rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt? Is he the one true God or, or is it this pantheon of demigods whom the Amalekites bow down to? Who is God? That is what is at stake here. And in this grisly encounter with the Amalekites, I think we see that the Lord forms the Israelites. He's shaping his people in the midst of these challenges in the wilderness, and especially in this acute kind of grisly encounter. And in this encounter, the Lord was forming the Israelites specifically three ways that I want to highlight. He was forming them to become a people of engagement. People who were engaged with what God was doing. He was forming them into a people of partnership. People who would partner with one another in the work that God had for them. And thirdly, God was forming them to become a people of prayer. So a people of engagement, a people of partnership, and a people of prayer. That's where we're going for the rest of the morning. So first of all, engagement. In verse 9, Vicki read that Moses said to Joshua, choose some men for us and go out and fight with Amalek. Choose, go out, and fight. These are all verbs of engagement. These are all action verbs. And I think what we learn here is that God wants the Israelites to be in the game, not on the bench. I want you to choose. I want you to make decisions. I want you to go out. I want you to get up and go. I want you to fight. I want you to be engaged in what I'm doing. I want you to be involved, not a bystander, but a participant. I've said this a number of times here. I love, and this does get me in trouble sometimes, but I love... Um, I love what Nike just sort of does for us. You know, just sometimes, just, just do it. Just go for it. And I think maybe that's the heart of what is going on here. Uh, the living God is like, just do it. Just go for it. Choose some men. Go out and fight the battle. I'm sure that most of you have heard this saying that you, um, you can only steer a ship that is moving. Right? A ship that is not moving cannot be redirected somewhere else. But a ship that's moving can actually be redirected. And I wonder if God with us might want to say to us something like, choose, go out, and fight. Just do it. Get moving. Don't worry, I'll redirect you. 
I'll redirect your path the way that I want you to go. In Celebrate Recovery, we sometimes say uh, the program works if you work the program. The program works if you work the program. You've got to be engaged in what God is doing. Choose, go out, fight, engagement. The living God is forming the Israelites to be people of engagement. He's also forming them to be people of partnership. Verse 10, I love this. Verse 10, so Joshua did as Moses told him, and he fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Wouldn't that be a convenient name to have today, Hur? When Hur went up to the top of the hill. Now Moses, he's got his hand raised up, but he gets tired. Think about it. We're singing a Waymaker here, and uh, it's like I can't help but just lift, lift my hands like Waymaker, Miracle Worker. Like, and uh, you know what? By the end of the song, I'm like, I'm kind of tired. <laughs> I don't know how much longer I can hold my hands up here. Moses' hands get tired, and it turns out that it requires some partnership. It requires the help of Aaron and the help of her. All three of them together, they hold Moses' arms in the air. Well, first of all, they provide a, a seat for Moses to sit down on because I guess he was so tired he couldn't stand up anymore. I love this image. Moses doesn't go out and do this on his own. He partners with his pals. Aaron and her and Moses, they do it together. And you know what? In these circumstances, if it weren't for this partnership of these three gentlemen, they and all of Israel would have perished. I think God is teaching them and he's teaching us to be people of partnership. We're not supposed to go it alone. He gives us partners. He gives us brothers and sisters in Christ. He gives us family. He gives us important relationships in our life. People upon whom we can lean and whom we can trust. I watched this documentary last week about uh, the Dutch sailor Laura Decker. Have you ever heard of her? Uh, she, this uh, was a number of years ago, but at the age of 16, Laura Decker completed her circumnavigation of the globe in a sailboat by herself. She became the youngest solo circumnavigator. Is that even a word? You know what I mean. And I noticed during this, uh, during this film that almost all the time she had a full body harness on. And every time she would go out on the deck, she would clip in. And it dawned on me, oh right, she's by herself. If she goes overboard, it's game over. There's nobody else on the boat who can turn around and rescue her. If she goes overboard, game over. Her sailboat sails to Fiji and leaves her in the middle of the ocean. Without partnership, she had zero room for error. And this is not actually how Jesus envisions you and me to engage in life. We were created for partnership, not for solo-ship. And especially when we find ourselves in difficult seasons, when we find ourselves in the wilderness, or when we are in one of those grisly encounters kind of experiences. Partnership, friendship, relationship. 
My wife Krista and I, uh, a number of years ago, we were involved in this ministry to people who were struggling with homelessness. And we would go out on Friday nights and we would uh, engage uh, these folks struggling with homelessness in conversation. We would engage them uh, in prayer. And it always helped to have hot chocolate and maybe a snack to offer. And so we would go out armed with the desire to pray and hot chocolate. And uh, I don't remember the details, but there was one um, evening when Krista couldn't go. I don't know if she wasn't feeling well or had another commitment or whatever. And I was like, well, I'm just going to go do it. And uh, she uh, was much wiser than I. She's like, Peter, you can't go do that alone. You're not supposed to go do that alone. It's really important that that's something you do with someone else. You know, Jesus sent out 70 disciples to go and minister, to go and proclaim the kingdom, and he sent them out two by two. He sent them out in pairs. That was intentional. That was purposeful. We're meant for partnership. The Lord was forming his people, and he's forming us for partnership. Lastly, He's forming us to become people of prayer. Verse 11, whenever Moses held up his hands, Israel prevailed. Whenever Moses, and it it probably should say, whenever Moses, along with the partnership of Aaron and Hur, held up Moses' hands, Israel prevailed. And Moses holding up his hands is an image of Moses praying. This is Moses praying. Some scholars think that uh, perhaps Moses is actually directing the battle on the battlefield, but that just can't be the case because Moses equipped Joshua to go do that. And Moses is quite a ways away on a hill. So Moses is lifting up his hands in prayer, literally reaching up to the heavens. God, help us. God, help us. Psalm 63, verse 4 says, So I will bless you, this is the living God speaking, So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands and call on your name. Sorry, that's King David speaking. I will lift up my hands and call on your name. Again, it's the language of prayer. I will lift up my hands and reach out to you, God. Help me. Help us. We need you, God. You know, there's a saying that goes something like this, He's just too heavenly-minded to be of any earthly good. It's kind of a cut on those who seem to uh, be really committed to prayer, but not real committed to any other kind of engagement. You know, the Lord is forming the Israelites to become a people who are prayerfully engaged, who are engaged in the battle, and who are engaged in a prayerful posture. In fact, to be prayerfully engaged, this is one of our values here at Christ Pacific. We want to pray with eager expectation that God will hear us. I mean, that would be good enough, I think, all on its own, that God listens. The God of the universe, the God who created everything we can see, the God who came to rescue us through his son, Jesus. This God is listening. But more than that, We're called to be people who pray in expectation that God will hear and also move. That God will respond in his grace and in his power. And to be prayerfully engaged, this requires that you and I actually trust God. If we don't trust the Lord, there's no reason for us to pray. Think about it. 
I mean, if you don't trust him, why would you talk to him? Why would you ask the Lord for help? Had Moses and Aaron and Hur not believed that the Lord could somehow grant them victory in this grisly encounter, in this battle, then they never would have devoted this kind of energy to prayer. But if we're going to be prayerfully engaged, then it requires also that you and I trust the living God. That we trust Him. That we trust that He not only hears us, but that he also responds in his grace and in his power, which means sometimes the way God responds is not the way we're asking him to respond because he's responding in his grace and his power. He's not responding according to our preferences. But how were Moses and Aaron and Hur, how were they able to trust God? I mean, what was it that led them to have such Enormous trust in the living God. I think it was the fact that they remembered. This is how they were able to trust. They simply remembered. They remembered that this is the Lord. This is the Lord by whose powerful arm they were taken out of slavery in Egypt. This is the Lord who rescued them against an enemy far more powerful than they. This is the Lord who was faithful yesterday. This is the Lord who was faithful last month. Will he not be faithful again tomorrow and next month? The Lord vanquished their enemies once before. Would he not do it again? They remembered. The Lord had been miraculously providing for them as well. You know, I had that map of their journey up on the screen a moment ago. It's a long journey. And along that journey, the Lord had been guiding them with a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud during the day. The Lord had been providing them food and water. Would God not lead them tomorrow as he has led them in the past? Would not God provide for them in the future as he has provided for them in the past? Would he lead them to this place in Rephidim? Would the Lord lead them to this place only for them to perish by the hand of the Amalekites? They remembered that's why they were able to trust God. And we also, we need to remember. That's how we can grow and be formed as people who trust God. And it's that trust that leads us to be engaged, that leads us to partner with one another, that leads us to Pray. We've got to remember that the same Lord who rescued the Israelites from Egypt is the same Lord who sent his one and only son who died sacrificially on a cross in order to vanquish our most significant enemies, the enemy of sin, the enemy of death, and the enemy of the devil. Jesus vanquished our enemies yesterday. Will we trust him to vanquish our enemies today and tomorrow? We must remember. You know, maybe this is why Jesus said to his disciples as he was sharing with them his final meal before he went to the cross and vanquished their enemies once and for all. Jesus said to his disciples as he passed the bread and passed the wine, he said, do this 
in remembrance of me. Remember me. Remember this moment. Remember what I'm about to do for you. Remember what I have done for you. Then you will trust me for tomorrow. Do you remember when I fought these battles against your enemies of sin and death and the devil? Will you trust me to fight these battles against your enemies of addiction, your enemies of idolatry, your enemies of fear and anxiety, your enemies of despair? Will you trust me to also fight those battles for you and with you? This is why I think or where my bear attack I was fine. Bear never touched me. My grisly encounter story uh, comes into play. You know, the only hope I had of surviving that bear encounter was through the gracious intervention of God. Think about this. Should that bear have decided to eat me, I'm quite certain it would have been able to. And believe me, when I woke up to footprints in the sand, I was prayerfully engaged. And isn't this generally true? When we're in difficult times, when we feel as though we're in the wilderness, when we are in the wilderness, when we're in the midst of these grisly encounters of life, we tend to be more prayerfully engaged. Maybe this is how God forms us most significantly. Maybe this is the way that God forms us in the midst of of suffering in the midst of these challenges and difficulties. I mean, think about it. Even our nation, when we have faced particular difficulties, we become increasingly prayerful. Do you remember what it was like post 9-11? Man, everybody was praying. Perhaps the Lord sometimes leads us into the wilderness. He leads us out there just as he did with Jesus of Nazareth when the Spirit of the Lord led him into the wilderness for 40 days. Maybe God actually leads us into the wilderness because that's the place that we are most significantly formed. That's where we become people who are prayerfully engaged. That's the place where we become people who learn to do life together, partner with others, because we realize in those moments we can't do it alone, and we're not meant to. Maybe because we're more supple in the wilderness, we're more eager to learn, we're more open to alternatives because we see so clearly how our own strength falls short. If this is you right now, if you're in a wilderness season in your life, or if you're in the midst of kind of an intense, grisly encounter, then I want to invite you to become prayerfully engaged. To, like Moses, invite some of your friends into that to partner with you in the midst of that wilderness, in the midst of that struggle. Some people who can maybe hold your arms up while you pray. Some people who can maybe provide a stone for you to sit on when you're too tired to stand in your own strength. And if this is you, I want to encourage you to remember. To remember. Remember that Jesus gave his life for you. 
to remember that Jesus died for your sin so that you could die to sin. To remember that Jesus laid down his life so that you could give him your life. To remember that Jesus poured out his blood on the cross so that his resurrection life might be poured into you. Remember. Remember. The Lord fought for you. And he vanquished your enemies. Your enemies of sin, death, and the devil. Will he not fight for you again today? Friends, let's become prayerfully engaged as we find our way through the wilderness where God shapes us. I'm going to invite us into a time of prayer. Uh, and I want to invite you to call upon God for help. I want to invite you to remember the ways in which God has helped in the past. And I want to invite you to trust this living God. So let's pray together. First of all, in the context of God's mercy and grace, in the context of God's presence here among us, just invite you to consider the wildernesses or the wilderness that you find yourself in today. Or the grisly encounter that you perhaps find yourself in today. And in these moments of silence, I just invite you to articulate that to the living God. Like, God, I'm, I'm in the wilderness, and this is what it's like. And just invite God to meet you there. God, meet us here. You met the Israelites in Rephidim. You promise us that even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that you are there with us and that we don't need to fear because your strength will hold us up. So meet us, living Lord, in the valley, in the wilderness, in the grisly encounter. And then I want you, I want to invite you to just articulate in this moment of silence. How do you want the Lord to help you? Just invite you to just to feel the freedom to name that. There's no right or wrong answer here. There's no like just, just God, I, this is how I want you to help me. He knows, he knows what you need. He's like a good, good father. He just would really like to hear you ask for help. God, this is how I want you to help. And then I invite you to ask God to give you a name or some names of people you can invite into this wilderness with you. Partners, people like Aaron and her who can provide a place for you to sit down when you're too tired to stand. 
who can hold up your arms in prayer when you don't have the strength to pray yourself. Just ask God for a name or a couple of names. Who might that person be who I could just invite into this and say, would you, would you pray for me with, the, with this and about this? Would you walk with me through this struggle? God, would you help us to trust you? Help us to trust you. That you've, you've got us. We trust you, Jesus. We trust you, Lord. We trust you, Holy Spirit. Help us to trust you more. We remember what you've done. Help us to keep remembering what you've done. Thanks for joining our Christ Pacific Sunday Sermon Podcast. To hear more of our sermons, or to subscribe, or to learn how you can be engaged with what we're up to in Huntington Beach, please visit us at C.